Hey, it's Jim Paff. Welcome again to the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people tend to be the most evil people of all because they want you to fit in the mold that they believe is best. We believe in a culture and government that honors individual decision-making, where you choose the direction of your life. This is the best way to promote justice and fairness in society and to promote an attitude of kindness, which looks to the benefit of others, not to yourself. You can join us at politicsisntnice.com. Click on the Join Us button there at the top right and join our email list. Let's get going with the podcast. I'm really excited about this podcast. Uh, We're going to be spending some time with Larry Reed, Lawrence W. Reed, as you search for him on the web. He's the former president, now president emeritus of Foundation for Economic Education. Larry has uh, written a book not long ago called Was Jesus a Socialist? And he answers this question because there's a lot of confusion in the church. There's a lot of there's a movement actually from the Democrat side of the aisle to try to affirm that Jesus was a socialist. A huge amount of misunderstanding out there, a belief that these commands to do good, to offer charity, and and to care for others is directed towards the government. But in the all of Scripture, it's only directed towards individuals and what their individual responsibility is. There are a lot of issues around that. I want to play a brief clip of Larry's uh, uh, Prager University video where he addresses this issue of uh, Jesus and socialism, and then I'll get back to the introduction. Was Jesus a socialist? Well, if socialism is nothing more than being kind to other people, then you might think the answer is yes. But you can be kind to other people and be a capitalist. John D. Rockefeller probably gave away more money than anyone in human history, and he was certainly a capitalist. Bill Gates and Warren Buffett have given away millions, too. To get an accurate answer to our question, we need to define socialism. Socialism is the concentration of power into the hands of government elites to achieve the following purposes, central planning of the economy and the radical redistribution of wealth. Jesus never called for any of that. Nowhere in the New Testament does he advocate for the government to punish the rich or even to use tax money to help the poor. Nor does he promote the ideas of state ownership of businesses or central planning of the economy. In Luke 12, Jesus is confronted by a man who wants him to redistribute wealth. Master, the man says to Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replies, man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And then he rebukes the man for being envious of his sibling. How about Jesus' parable of the talents? Talents were a form of money in Jesus' day. A man entrusted three of his workers with his wealth. The two who invested the money and made a profit were praised, and the one who buried his share so he wouldn't lose any of it was reprimanded. Sounds a lot more like an endorsement for capitalism than socialism, doesn't it? So there is no evidence that Jesus was a socialist, and there's lots of evidence that he supported free markets. In addition to the parable of the talents, Jesus offers his parable of the workers in the vineyard. In it, a landowner hires some laborers to pick grapes. Near the end of the day, he realizes he needs more workers to get the job done. 
To recruit them, he agrees to pay a full day's wage for just one hour of work. When one of the laborers who had worked an entire day complains, the landowner answers, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? That's a testament to the principles of supply and demand, of private property, and of voluntary contracts, not socialism. Jesus never endorsed the forced redistribution of wealth. That idea is rooted in envy, something that he and the Tenth of the Ten Commandments railed against. Jesus was not a socialist. He couldn't be. He loved people, not the state. As you can see, there's so much more than just these requirements for charity related to the uh, issue of socialism and Jesus. To the contrary, there's a bunch in Scripture that shows that God himself fundamentally uh, lays out a capitalistic, individual liberty approach to economics. And that's very important to understand. There's so much to this that every one of us needs to understand. Now, we have a far-flung conversation, Larry Reed and I, on other issues as well, voting, uh, the COVID-19 situation, and some of this other stuff. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview, so let's get right to it with Lawrence W. Reed, Professor Emeritus, former, I'm sorry, President Emeritus, uh, former uh, full-time president of Foundation for Economic Education. All right, folks, uh, welcome to the Against Nice podcast. Um, I'm here with uh, Lawrence Reed. I can call you Larry, right? Oh, absolutely. Good, great. Larry Reed. He, uh, Larry um, is just a really interesting guy that if you follow uh, Facebook, you're going to see a lot of uh, articles, uh, particularly if you have an economic libertarian understanding of things. You're going to see a lot of articles from the Foundation of Economic Education. Uh, Larry is the uh, outgoing president of FEE. I, I think you're still still kind of helping run things, even though you're in transition, I assume? Uh, uh, well, actually, we completed that uh, in May of 2019. I, at that oh, time, went from uh, the role of president to that of president emeritus. Yeah. So there's really no further transition, but uh, I'm still very active uh, with FEE, too. Good, yeah. And, and you guys still see your articles a lot. I love FEE's work. It's, I think, uh, one of the best... Uh, approaches to talking about economic principles because there's so much technicalia that comes out even amongst a movement quote-unquote libertarians who uh, are passionate about these issues and you guys have always done a great job with that and I think that happens in your case because you taught uh, economics full-time from 77 to 84 at Northwood University of Michigan and then you chaired that department from 82 to 84 uh, Larry served for 21 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy in Midland, Michigan from 87 to 2008. And then he became president of uh, Foundation for Economic Education in 2008 after serving as chairman, writing a bunch of articles since the 70s there. So Foundation for Economic Education, great organization. I think anyone listening to this podcast and really wants to understand uh, it, appropriate economic principles. I don't like to even call them conservative economic principles because there's so many conservatives, Larry, who really are not what we think right. and what we think we mean by conservative. But, but these um, uh, 
foundational principles of economics that go all the way back to Adam Smith and through Hayek and von Mises and Friedman and others. This is, why is it really important to understand these origins of economic principles and why are they so, so important for this country? The names that you mentioned, uh, Jim, are among the giants of uh, market economics who contributed uh, in tremendous ways, uh, great contributions to understanding the world in which we live. Uh, Hayek, Friedman, Mises, uh, uh, so many others uh, of that uh, category. In the last hundred years or so, uh, magnified our understanding of how markets work uh, tremendously, more than anybody since uh, Adam Smith. So understanding what they had to say, why they in some cases actually won a Nobel Prize and lots of other uh, public recognitions is, is critically important. Each one uh, made uh, some uh, eternal contributions that are, are worth remembering and considering. And if you don't know them, I think your knowledge of economics uh, uh, is going to have some gaps. Yeah, and you know, Nobel Prize winner Milton Friedman. It's kind of interesting because it, it, it's, kind of, it's funny to me, economics always ends up in the liberal arts curriculum <clears throat> of a college. When, and, and I understand why, because it is a study of human behavior. But uh, th there's also a lot of technical research that's required to be good at economics. That's the reason that Friedman won the Nobel Prize. But even more importantly, his particular prize, I mean, was, was really focused on something very practical, something very useful. And, and economics is a useful study because it, it really is a study of human, and this is why it's liberal arts, it's a study of human behavior. Yeah. But it's so much more than that. There are principles that are really important for us to grab onto as we're really trying to analyze what the heck's going, particularly going on in Washington, D.C., but really in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned Friedman a couple of times. He was one of those uh, rare examples of an economist who could uh, speak to any audience. Uh, you could put an audience of uh, PhDs in front of him, he could talk their language, he could be persuasive. Uh, and uh, if a man on the street walked in, he'd say, what are these guys talking about? But when he had to, uh, he could certainly communicate to the uh, average guy in the street, too. He was an incredibly persuasive and convincing um, and, uh, you know, and also a very nice guy. But, you know, so many academics, um, uh, they may know how to get a, uh, an article published in some journal read by 10 people, but they don't know how to communicate to broad lay uh, public audiences. Friedman could uh, certainly do that, did that very well. I think anyone who isn't aware of Friedman, or even if they are, but they're not constantly thinking about economics, they need to go onto YouTube and look for that Phil Donahue interview that he did back in the uh, late 70s, uh, from which he, he really corrects a lot of people re related to greed. And I share that video a lot because I think people always need to hear it. I won't go into that here, but, but yeah, he, <clears throat> that's a, a perfect example of how he could not only communicate to other people but when you've got really an antagonist even though phil donahue was a great interview host i mean he he had his very left-wing ideas but he he also liked guys like milton freeman and liked the discussion but you've got an antagonist on the other side and and he with a great jovial nature would uh come against that without being yeah. you know bashing people's heads in and that was very useful i have to say 
how important that is too for people to look at guys like Friedman so they can learn. I got in to, uh, I think I was always kind of in a, a libertarian perspective in economics when I was young because my dad really hated what Washington DC did. And I don't even think he could have defined himself as a libertarian, but I learned the ideas. I grew up watching Louis Rukeyser. I mean, I was 12 years old in the 1970s. <laughs> that guy, I mean, I learned so much. I mean, well, first of all, I, I, I went to it because he, they did speak in, in, in a, technical language constantly on that show. Yeah. So I'm in my preteens just fascinated by this. And I learned so much by watching that show. So these things kind of got me into a foundation of this. But then I had a professor named Monty Jullerad. I, I, ended, I started at Indiana University in Bloomington. I, I didn't get an economics major. I, I actually majored in English. But, uh, but I took economics classes because I was passionate about it. And this professor was one of these cantankerous economics professors uh -huh. that in one sense seemed unapproachable, but on the other side seemed to really care about his students, but he would, he would, didn't let you get by with anything. And, uh -huh. and uh, so I, I learned a lot from that. It was very, that's why I appreciate what you did at, in teaching economics too, because that's a, that's a tough thing to get to kids at when we've had an, especially when you were teaching, when we've had a, a country where these libertarian economic principles were really hard to yeah. get to kids with because the culture was telling them something different at the time. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed at some of the similarities in your background uh, with mine. Uh, my father sounds a lot like yours. And I too <laughs> had a professor that at times could be cantankerous, but he was uh, a great uh, advocate for liberty. And I'll never forget, he, he was from Germany and had, uh, uh, experienced uh, Nazism firsthand, so he he uh, eventually became an Austrian school economist, solidly free market and very articulate. But he had a Germanic demeanor about him in class. And uh, after a brilliant lecture, with a few minutes to go, one time a student raised his hand and said, uh, "Dr. Senholtz, what you say sounds pretty good, but there aren't many people who believe that. So why should we believe you?" Something to that effect. <laughs> <laughs> and those of us who knew him well thought, oh my gosh, this uh, student is going to get blitzkrieg. Uh, <laughs> blitzkrieg. But uh, Dr. Senholtz got very quiet, and then he said, uh, truth is not a numbers game. You can be alone, and you can be right. And then he paused and said, I am alone, and I am right. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, that was very difficult water to tread for many years. I mean, even Milton Friedman and as far back as Hayek as well, too, who, who uh, people don't realize, uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek and John Maynard Keynes, who were antagonists at economics, were actually really good friends. But um, I, it, it's really fun having professors like that and to have those kinds of experiences because they form us. I mean, this is, what, by the way, you talk about all of the the cancel culture that's connected into universities nowadays. Um, I connected with uh, Robbie George recently. I'm hoping to have him on a future podcast if I can, but he did a big tweet storm recently about what he, what he's seen with people that connect to him as a Princeton professor, you know, and it just, it's, it's, it's horrible. So there was a time when that was not a problem, even though you had a leftist leaning in these uh, university campuses 
you still had people that were passionate. I remember another uh, professor story for me uh, before we get into your book, uh, Jesus Wasn't a Socialist, but another professor story for me, I had a very left-wing professor who was a former chancellor of Indiana University. This was in an early um, uh, philosophy class that I had. And he's talking about um, um, who was the disciple of, uh, of uh, Jeremy Bentham. Um, I'm suddenly forgetting his name. Um, uh, utilitarianism. Um, yep, utilitarianism. So anyway, we're talking about that. And, and I'm rejecting it because both Bentham and I just can't even believe I'm forgetting his name suddenly um, were atheists. And they made an argument again. And so I was like rejecting it and getting upset. And this very left wing professor, former chancellor came up to me and he says, listen, Jim, I, th- I think you're missing this. I know you're a conservative and everything, but you're not understanding utilitarianism is kind of, you know, in your, in your bailiwick here, you're, you're just kind of missing. And he really helped me think better through it and not reject something out of hand, but to listen to it holistically yeah. and see how it fits in. It was a tremendous uh, lesson for me because I needed that help as a young person. We're not getting that in universities anywhere near like no, we used to get. That's the way academia should work. Yeah. It's, uh, it's sad and it's gotten so bad that uh, when I talk to parents and they say, you know, should my uh, youngster go to college? or where should uh, he or she go, I tell them to be very careful uh, the place you choose and consider seriously uh, not sending them at all. Uh, look at, uh, at an alternative because uh, so yeah. many uh, institutions of so-called higher education are just scams now. It, it really is, and it's, it's, it's harming our debate uh, in this country, and it's making it very difficult. So. I think I think this is a good transition because you, one of the great myths that exists out there, of um, John Stuart Mill, who is, is who I was thinking about, but uh, one of the great myths out there right now is the myth of socialism and how and its utility in a society. This and what the worst part about this is that the concepts of socialism have seeped into the church. And, and by the church, even though, you know, as an evangelical, reformed Christian, you know, uh, I, I kind of think a lot, people can think a lot about that in the church. I'm kind of saying it more broadly. I think people of, of goodwill, so of, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, whether it's Christians or Jews and, and even to some degree Muslims, people of, of goodwill know that, they're, that this socialism thing is really not good for society, but there's a confusion because many of these people think that the Bible teaches this. And and you and I have seen this for years developing in a way that's very difficult. I've, we were talking before the program, but you know, I spent eight years on Capitol Hill as chief of staff for a couple different congressmen and the professed Christians who are elected members of Congress. I say many of them vote like Satan because they're not voting biblically. Yeah. But but it's because of this challenge that has come through a, a lack of education when it comes to economic principles that the Bible really does support a a view of uh, economics that is individual individual not individualistic but individually 
individual responsibility and, and no teaching of government responsibility except where injustice comes in through mm -hmm. government actions. And so you wrote a book recently uh, called Jesus Wasn't a Socialist. No, no, it's uh, was. Jesus. Was Jesus a socialist? Sorry, yeah, I got my <laughs> dyslexia right. yeah, coming in there. The it comes to. <laughs> that is the conclusion. Was Jesus a socialist? And and this this is a critical book. I've heard a lot of interviews. We we didn't know each other before this, but I've heard a lot of your interviews, read some of your articles, and I wanted to really talk about this because I call myself a Christian libertarian, <laughs> and uh, that seems odd. That seems actually contradictory to a lot of people. I've been saying this though since the 1990s when I first got involved in politics, because I think we need to understand that libertarian economic principles, uh, my big beef with the libertarian party is that uh, even though there are a lot of good people involved with that, fundamentally at the end of the day, you would think that the libertarian party's platform was if we can just make uh, drugs and prostitution legal, we'll all be free. That's kind of my beef with the, with the libertarian party. And so I'm small L libertarian. These principles are really biblical in foundation, in my opinion. Okay, so why did you write the book? What are you trying to convey? Tell me a little bit about that. Okay, well, I've been hearing this uh, myth for decades that Jesus would have been sympathetic to the ideas of socialism. I've always been uncomfortable with that. Couldn't square it with what I understood uh, from the New Testament and decided a few years ago I was going to uh, dig into it in more detail. And uh, the first result of that was a short essay on this subject in 2015, and then a Prager University video. And both were so popular that I decided the topic was worth uh, diving into in great depth. So the result of that is this new book, Was Jesus a Socialist? I couldn't find anywhere in the New Testament, in any of the words of Jesus, uh, Jim, anything that uh, is even remotely sympathetic to the ethics or the teachings, uh, the principles of socialism, none whatever. Jesus never advocates uh, for government ownership of the means of production. He never suggests that the central planning of an economy by political elites is the way to go. He never favored forcible redistribution. I mean, for crying out loud, whenever the uh, 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 5,000, the uh, story of the multitude, the 5,000 who approach him and to hear him speak, they're all very hungry. And all the uh, disciples have to feed them are five loaves of bread and two fishes. What does Jesus do? If he were a socialist, he would have told the disciples when they asked, how are we going to feed these people? He would have said, well, you know, go find a neighborhood of rich people or maybe a bank or a marketplace and, and rob those places, uh, take from those mm -hmm. people and bring it all here so we can redistribute. Uh, but instead, he uses his own unique power to magnify those loaves and fishes and then feeds them, uh, feeds the people without even pilfering a crumb from anybody. Um, uh, socialism is uh, rooted in force and envy and uh, ugly attitudes uh, that uh, revolve around punishing successful people, counting the other guy's blessings instead of yours, none of that is biblical. So those who suggest that uh, Jesus was in any way sympathetic to socialism, I think probably either, either haven't uh, actually read the New Testament or uh, have decided that their political agenda is more important than anything Jesus could have said. What, what are the real consequences of this idea in the church, and why do we need to talk about this issue? Well, the, uh, you know, if I, 
let me put it in terms of the angelic conflict, good versus evil, God versus Satan. If I were Satan, and my objective was to undermine uh, creation, to corrupt and destroy humankind, and I had to think about, now, now how do I go about doing that? Well, socialism would be one of my primary tools. I would say, well, let's, uh, you know, humans are so flawed, so let's, uh, let's get them to concentrate political power in as small a number of people as possible. Um, let's give anointed humans massive power to push other people around, take their stuff, redistribute, and all this and that. Uh, uh, that'll corrupt them good. And of course, mm -hmm. um, it does. And uh, so it, the church needs to understand that uh, one of the principal tools that the forces of darkness use to enslave and misinform and destroy people is uh, the concentration of political power for purposes that socialists say they favor. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, well, that, that brings you back to the uh, video of uh, Milton Friedman. I said I wasn't going to talk about <clears throat> this whole idea of greed, you know, because uh, in that Phil Donahue interview, Phil Donahue says, don't you ever have second thoughts about capitalism, you know, with all the greed and stuff? He says, well, first of all, who's, what is greed? <laughs> you know, yeah, the other guy's yeah, greedy, yeah. not me. You know, he's like, you, you, you think that uh, politicians aren't greedy? You think that, you yeah. know, th this is, this is the uh, thing, which is one of the great things about Milton Friedman, is arguing from the logic of the actual situation. I mean, we, we are an illogical society right now. But the logic yeah. of it is to ask. So suddenly, uh, it's, it's all the people that try to do well for themselves or build a business or make profit that are greedy you think that politicians can't be greedy and that's that is the real lie of socialism isn't it oh and in fact uh it's not an exaggeration to say jim that the greatest or or, or the greediest people uh the people with the greatest degree of greed in the world are the socialists think about <laughs> it they're the ones who are always talking about money not as something that uh they would like to uh, uh you know increase uh, in terms of uh, our material wealth, but they're always talking about money in terms of people who have it, who shouldn't, and we're going to take it from them. Everything comes down to money uh, and the political power that they want to concentrate for the purpose of taking money and yeah. distributing it to the people they think ought to have it. You, you know, we Christians, uh, uh, are, we're always talking about, you know, money is one thing and it's important in material uh, well-being, but it isn't everything that uh, things like personal character matter, honesty, respect for property, responsibility, patience, humility. Now, these are all important too, but to the socialist, money is everything. That's what they're after. Every scheme they propose involves seizing somebody else's money for purposes they think are best. You know, I was on the radio for four years, a daily radio show back in the... Um from about 2006 to 10 before I went to Capitol Hill. And talking about these principles, I, I would try to describe this for people in this way when it comes to greed. So let's just say you're the, pardon my language, the greediest bastard in the world. You're just, you're the, man, you just want, all you want is to make money and profit. You want to be wealthy. Well, what do you got to do to get there? Well, first, you, have, you start a company, obviously. You try to figure out uh, what people will buy, a lot of, yeah. And then you start producing it. While you're doing that, you've got to have employees who are efficient enough not to only produce the product or the service in an effective way. And you got to train them 
to do that. So once yeah. you start to get a little bit of growth, you're on this way to greed. Now you got to go back to your customers, say, hey, what did you like about the product? Uh, is there anything else we could do for you? So you improve the product, maybe introduce other products that they like. So you can continue to expand your empire. And then you got to come back to your employees and make sure that you're taking care of them in a way so that they're productive and could, and suddenly, all of a sudden, you become a billionaire maybe. And how did you, what did you have to do to get there? You had to follow the golden rule. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's I like. Think, I think a lot of times, Jim, uh, people who love to look at uh, people in business and condemn them in a blanket fashion as a bunch of greedy people, I don't know that they really have ever come to know business people. And usually yeah. they're not business people themselves, so they would likely have a different view, although there are plenty of exceptions. But uh, the business people I have known, with, with few, if any, exceptions, they're not in business because they want to accumulate uh, coins, piles of gold coins, and play with them in their right. business. I mean, right. you, you really get to know them and you discover they're in business. Why? Because they value independence. They want to be on their own. They want to create wealth. They don't want to be a burden to somebody else. And they enjoy creating uh, uh, products that other people willingly say, I'd like to give you something for that. They enjoy uh, solving problems. And that dimension of entrepreneurship is completely lost to the socialist. All they can see are evil, greedy people whose money they want to take. Well, let me put a cap on that with my experience. Eight years in Washington, D.C., these are people who not only are on average making a vastly higher income than the average American, but they are actually, in a sense, so to speak, sitting in their basement playing with their coins after their $150,000 a year uh, or more salary that they're working in Washington, D.C. Working yeah. in an area that has seven of the 10 wealthiest counties in the United States, all, only one of which, uh, when, when you get up uh, to Reston and Loudoun County, only one of which has any economic productivity taking place in it. And that's, you know, you've got Verizon there, you've got AOL was founded up there. There's a little bit of economic activity, but nothing relative to the incomes that are there. That is, that entire system is built on our money coming out of the hinterlands and mm -hmm. plopping down right there in Washington, D.C. And they so are counting their coins. Yeah, and so many of them uh, cannot stand apart from themselves and look at their, uh, themselves objectively. Uh, and uh, if they could, they would have a guilty conscience most of the time, realizing, yeah. that, gee, I'm, I may not be really adding to the wealth of society at all, but I sure am subtracting from it. There's an yeah. awful lot of people out there who uh, didn't have uh, much ability to say no thanks uh, when the tax co collector came and uh, took their money and gave it to me. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so really, the point you're making in your book that I think is so critical is that the fundamental principles of the Bible, the moral and logical, if you want to say, principles of the Bible, really do center around free market economics in a, in a fundamental way. I, you know, I, I tell people a lot, I want to get your sense of this. I appoint people to 1 Samuel 8 quite often. So, uh, at that juncture in the Old Testament, Samuel is the judge of Israel, and Israel says, we want a king. And it really ticked Samuel off. And then God said, no, 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 they haven't rejected you. 
they rejected me as a king. And then when he, and he, and God lets them do it. And when Samuel describes to them what it's going to be like under a king, I mean, that, that almost reads like the newspaper today. Uh, the things that were, that, yeah. that, that they would be responsible for. But here's, here's the critical thing to me. You know, we, we, there are a lot of instances in history that lead up to the kind of legal, you know, judicial and economic freedom that culminated in the United States. So we can point all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi. We can point to Magna Carta. There are some of these various things that we can look to. In the case of those two codes, though, that, those freedoms were left to the gentrified stratus of, of uh, economics. Um, it w- didn't go all the way down to the people. No one points out the fact that ancient Israel was not a theocracy, by the way. I mean, it was a theocracy in the sense that, that they were responsible individually to God. But as a government system, it was not a theocracy. That was really, in my opinion, the first major instance of liberty-minded government that ever exists. Because what was the government connection? The government connection was two people have a dispute, they go to a judge. Yeah. They get it resolved, and then they go back and live their lives. You're talking about the That's period a sig- of the judges. So that was about the period years. of the judges, yeah. yeah. From Moses, not really Joshua, but from Moses mm-hmm. all the way to Samuel, yeah. and, which is, uh, I think, a couple, two or 300-year period. 350. And they, 350, thank you. And uh, that that's a significant aspect of history. It's an example we should be able to look to, I, I think. Would you agree with that? I think to a great extent, yes. Now, uh, the, the Old Testament may explain that there were periods in that uh, 350 years where the Israelites uh, lost track of uh, yep. the commitment that they had made to God, and they paid for it, and there were some wars and so forth. But uh, the overall governing structure was as close to a uh, – libertarian commonwealth, as you can imagine. Uh, there wasn't a monarch, as you point out, until uh, uh, Samuel caved in uh, uh, and, and said, okay, if you want one, here it is. But uh, t- he told them what they'd suffered because of it. Uh, but the, uh, there was widespread consensus among the Israelites that this is the way we, w- we want to be governed, that we have a common understanding of what the law is and what we should and shouldn't do. And uh, we uh, accept the, the uh, uh, rulings of the uh, uh, people uh, who will be our judges. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they were people of integrity, most of them. Uh, one yeah. was a woman, as you well know, Deborah. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Good, uh, judge and uh, led the successful effort to defeat the uh, uh, aggressive uh, Canaanites. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating period and, generally speaking, a kind of libertarian one. Yeah, I, I agree. And, 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 but, by the way, it wasn't just libertarian on the upside where the judicial system was working well. It was libertarian on the downside, if you really think about it. So one of the things that we haven't upheld in this country in recent decades, maybe the, the last century possibly, as well as we should, is that a truly free society, everyone reaps all the benefits of the good decisions that they make, but they should reap all the negative consequences of the bad decisions that they make. And that's, well, that's not fair. Why should people have to, well, the the reason is that what ends up happening at the end of the day is people moderate their approach when the risk. We learn from our mistakes. 
Yeah. And it makes society more stable economically and otherwise, morally in every way, because not only your good decisions aren't only at on the P&L sheet. Okay. That's part of it. But your other decisions are what leads to that P&L, which does include human interaction. Yeah. And it's a, that this is a Christian principle. You know, I, uh, Matt and Terry Kibbe, who run Free the People, are good friends of mine. And they have t shirts that say, uh, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. Yeah. I think that's the title that's, of that book. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that is a biblical principle at its foundations, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, Jesus made it plain that when he came, it was not to overrule or uh, uh, countermand the law, by which he meant the Mosaic law, principally mm-hmm. the Ten Commandments. Uh, well, uh, you have the Eighth and the Tenth uh, of the Ten Commandments. Both of them, I think, are strongly economic in nature, or at least have strong economic implications. One of them says, thou shalt not steal. Yeah, uh, there's a period there. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless the other guy has more than you do. Right. <laughs> thou, shalt not, thou shalt not steal unless you're just absolutely convinced you could spend it better than the guy, the guy who earned it. Uh, it says, or or it doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless you hire a politician to do it for you. And yeah. then the other uh, commandment I was referring to, the tenth, says thou shalt not covet which is, again, it helps establish private property. If it's not yours, keep your cotton-picking fingers off of it. Focus on yourself instead of counting the other guy's blessings. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And um, I, I think, uh, in fact, is there any place in the Bible that commands a government to undertake uh an economic uh, consequence to individuals. So, for example, people always argue, well, Jesus says to take care of the poor. Yeah. Well, okay, but but he does. But does he ever command it to government? Did God ever do that in the Old Testament? Yeah, what do you think he would have said uh, if to uh, some people who, if he first said to them, take care of the poor, and if they came back at him and said, uh, okay, we're going to do that by just uh, uh, turning what we have over to the Romans and, and, and we'll have them take care of it so we don't have to. Do you think right. he would say, oh, that's okay. That's <laughs> no, yeah. he would say, look, I, I'm interested in what's in your heart and what you actually do of your own free will with your own resources is what tells me what's in your heart. And right. sitting back and saying, uh, let the politicians do it may make you feel good. But uh, that's not what I'm talking about. That's I'm quite sure that's what he would have said. So, um, so what does the uh, what does the uh, Bible command of people uh, when it comes to these issues? Well, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, one very important uh, commandment is don't steal, and that has implications. Socialists have to explain why their prescription for economic policy isn't uh, theft. Well, of course it is. Listen to any socialist uh, talk, and they have a laundry list of not helpful hints for the comment box, but rather a very specific, uh, mandatory, compulsory, coercive uh, decrees. Uh, They want to dragoon people into their schemes. Uh, They want to steal money from people and give it to somebody else. Uh, so yeah. they, they're the ones that have to explain where the biblical basis is for that. Um, the Bible also says, be humble. Don't act like you know everything because you don't. 
So uh, that's, uh, I think, central planner uh, type people need to consider that and think that they can, you know, whose own lives may be a mess, but nonetheless, they think they can plan yours. Um, they need a little humility, which the Bible teaches. Uh, the Bible also te teaches responsibility. Don't uh, expect to foist the bad consequences of your poor decisions on other people, um, which socialism does all the time. Um, so I, I think it basically says, uh, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you, the golden rule. Socialism undermines the golden rule because it rests not upon voluntary, mutually beneficial interaction and respect for the lives and property and decisions of others. It rests upon a, uh, a, a small political elite with concentrated power pushing other people around. So... Um... You talk in your PragerU video, which I'll share uh, on this podcast, talk okay. about the parable of the talents. I think it's one of the key portions of Scripture Yes, deal with how, whether or not socialism is, is even a proper economic principle at all. And it's yeah. pr very profound, actually, as well. I agree. It's a parable told by Jesus himself, and he talks about uh, a man who is leaving his estate for a time, and he calls three men together and he says, I'm going to entrust a portion of my wealth to each of you. And by the way, the initial distribution is not egalitarian. It's not equal. And he says, when I come back, I'll see uh, what you've done with it. And uh, good luck. So uh, then the parable picks up when the man returns. He calls the three guys together and he says to the first guy, what did, what did you do with the talents? Which is a coin. Uh, yeah. Measurement yeah. of... of, uh, of material wealth. What did mm -hmm. you do with the talents I entrusted you with? And the first man says, oh, you'll be happy with me. I buried it in the backyard. And so I have exactly what you entrusted me with. Well, Jesus doesn't say, oh, hey, that's pretty good. Thanks. No, he's, he says, what? And I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he says. You mean you didn't do anything with it? You, you didn't magnify it? That's terrible. That's terrible. So uh, he condemns him. And then he says to the second guy, what'd you do with it? And the second guy says, oh, I, I invested it. And, and I've got two or three times now uh, what you entrusted me with. He's praised. And then the third guy says, oh, I, you know, I've got about 10 times what uh, you entrusted me with. How about that? I, I really uh, uh, did the right thing with it. And, and uh, Jesus gives the greatest praise to the third man. And then he's takes one further step in this parable and says, we're going to take the money from the first guy and give it to this third guy because he knows how to magnify wealth. Well, if Jesus were a socialist, he could never have the man say that. He would say things like to the third guy, oh, you must be greedy. You're focused on material things and we're going to have to punish you for your success. Of course not. I mean, that's, that's childish, infantile, baby stuff that socialists are motivated by. But um, I think the parable of the talents is profoundly pro-private property, entrepreneurship, individual initiative, a voluntary contract. I mean, so many principles of, of uh, free markets are embedded in that parable. They really are. And we talk about the positive lessons. Yeah. The negative lesson, let me just, let me just emphasize this. The negative lesson is the guy who hoarded it was rebuked. Yes. The guy who did not undertake economic or investment effort with his money was stringently rebuked 
to the point of God taking away the money that he had. That's, that's a hugely profound lesson here, isn't it? Oh, it's, yeah, it is. But you, you talk to the average socialist who claims Jesus was one of theirs. It's, it's just in one ear and out the other. I mean, they, uh, they usually don't talk about it at all. But when you raise it, they want to move on to something else. So um, I, I think a lot of the, the challenge that people have as they try to evaluate this is that they don't understand fully enough. And you, you talk about this in some of your articles to describe uh, your book, Was Jesus a Socialist? Uh, you talk about the, the kind of the progression of the definitions of socialism, which I think helps us understand this. So, you know, initially socialism was defined as the government ownership of the means of production. And it, and it eventually became, which is maybe really more, you can correct me if you want, but maybe more the communist definition of socialism, which is the uh, central planning of an economy. And it, it, it kind of hit on that a little bit. And where do you think in, in the Bible that people try to draw out some parallels to this, which frankly, I don't see, but maybe well, hit on that a little. You know, there are a lot of variants of socialism over the years, and that's primarily because uh, uh, socialists are committed ultimately to the concentration of power. And so when one method uh, appears widely to have flopped, <laughs> then they say, oh, well, that wasn't it. We'll try it the next time. But every, every variant they try has the same uh, end purpose, which is to concentrate wealth. So some of them say, well, socialism, okay, means of production, government ownership. Oh, yeah, we're not for that so much, uh, but uh, we're for a welfare state. We want, uh, want right. to concentrate power in government for that purpose, uh, to take yeah. from some and give to others and reshape society and along the lines of uh, compulsory welfareism. Uh, some Christians say, well, there's support for that in the Book of Acts because uh, uh, the some early Christians said, well, uh, let's go off and, and uh, proselytize on Christ's behalf, uh, but we're, let's put, put all of our resources uh, in one pot and have equal redistribution of them uh, as we do this. Well, you know, in the very same next verse, very same chapter and the next verse, there's a reference to them continuing to meet in their own ho homes. So if they had to sell everything, uh, how could they end up still having their own homes? But in any event, that was voluntary. That was not compulsory. And it was right. one group of early Christians that probably represent 0.00001% of all Christians who've ever lived. Uh, it was after the crucifixion. It wasn't a commandment from uh, Jesus himself. And it was uh, rather quickly abandoned, too. You don't yeah. find references to it among early Christians shortly thereafter. Um, so, uh, and the reason is it, it flops every time. Yeah, uh, We should have learned that in 1620 when the pilgrims at first uh, uh, tried to do this, when they founded uh, the Plymouth Colony. Uh, they said, well, let's put everything in a common storehouse and distribute it equally. And right. that lasted a couple of years until they were on the verge of starvation. And Governor Bradford records in his diaries about how um, so many people said or thought that, hey, you know, if I, have, if I end up getting the same as everybody else, why, why work? Let them do it. And I, I still get the goodies. Uh, and so they abandoned it. And he solved the problem by saying after a couple of years, okay, 
we're going to parcel out the uh, the land by private ownership, and you can grow what you want, sell it for what you can get for it, and all of a sudden it it changed their behavior. Now they had to produce uh, instead of just sitting back waiting for some official to give them their fair share. Adam Smith's invisible hand. It's exactly. it's one of the great mir- you know, and, and <clears throat> we there might there might be a spiritual aspect to this that God superimposes on society providentially, but. But to be candid, much of the concept of the invisible hand, and I think, I think Adam Smith himself believed that, uh, in God's providence over this, but Adam Smith's invisible hand is merely, in my estimation, an, an explanation of the serendipitous power of individual pursuits. You'll notice, yeah. you, you always hear this uh, from Milton Friedman that, you know, uh, it's just a sum total of people's individual pursuits that he doesn't say in individual, you know, greed or anything like that. It's yeah. just it, their self-interest. Yeah, um, it's that's, yeah, it is. And so when, when we're trying to do the best for our family, trying mm-hmm. to grow something, and by the way, the supposed greed of people who run these businesses and make a lot of money, I, I got to tell you, for the most part, almost in, you definitely have people with bad motives, like the one I described earlier that I, in my example, there's no doubt about that. There are a lot of people like that, but um, for the most part, and, and you, by the way, you only hear about those people yeah. on the news, on the business networks, because they're the ones that are always on. Yeah. And, and they're the ones who are regularly um, not, um, uh, they're the ones that are regularly sh- showing up. I'm going to edit this out because my wife just walked in. Um, sorry. <laughs> they're the ones that are showing up on television all the time who are uh, touting themselves. You don't hear about the people who don't show up on TV. Their motive is typically, I just want to build a great company yeah. that has a reputation that lasts long after me. These are the Jack Welches of the world. Yeah. who, you know, I mean, he was a human being, so I know you can find something negative on him here or there. But the reality is the guy just wanted to make the comp- GE great. He worked really hard to make GE great. He was upset when Jeffrey Immelt made it not so great, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but, but it was that sense of accomplishment. That, uh, yeah, people want to make the money. They want to do well. There's no doubt about that. But that sense of accomplishment is really the driver for the vast majority of us imperfect human beings yeah. who are trying to accomplish something in a free market society. That's right. And, you know, an entrepreneur who engages in voluntary, mutually beneficial commercial activity, creates wealth, uh, builds enterprises, employs people, has every reason to believe that uh, he or she is a kind of hero. Uh, Most of them don't think that way because quite often they're very humble people and they're not focused on fame and fortune for themselves as they are uh, uh, the fulfillment that comes from having done something worthwhile, of having solved problems and brought people together and made for happy customers and provided for their families. And, you know, the socialists, as I said earlier, are just missing so much when they try to take that whole group of people, tens of millions of them, and and say, uh, oh, they're just greedy people, blah, 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 blah. Um, I mean, I... Yeah, it's an it's it's an illness of the mind to uh, fail to comprehend uh, the wonderful things that come our way from uh, people who don't have to do that for us, don't have to 
create things, but take the risk to do so. We should be celebrating them, not vilifying them and driving them out of the country or, or into penury. So in your book, is there something maybe that we're missing here that is really key that people need to understand to get that book? Well, I would say uh, a, a couple good reasons to get it uh, would be, one, uh, whether you're Christian or not, there is a uh, uh, profound concentration in the book on, on actual words of Jesus, not some, uh, somebody's interpretation of what they think he said, but rather what he actually said. So you may not be a Christian, you may be of another faith or no faith, but you can appreciate the book because it offers actual evidence from the real words of Jesus, not just somebody's uh, uh, supposed summation of it. And another reason is there's lots of good economics in there. Uh, yeah. Uh, you come away with a far better understanding of things like private property and free markets and the price, the price system and incentives and so forth. Yeah. And you, you come from uh, years of experience in that regard. So that's, that's very useful for people to understand. You know, I've told young people in politics in particular that I've talked to through the years who, you know, they want to do this or that thing in politics. Um, I uh, always encourage them Christian or non-Christian to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. You know, there are 31 Proverbs, mm -hmm. half of the months, I have 31 days, half don't. But, mm -hmm. and I say, you know, listen, they're, 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 if, if, if you're not following God or whatever, <laughs> they're still, the principles are fundamental. So if you can just get past that, if it offends you, of course, I hope it helps them. But if, if you get past that, if it offends you, the wisdom that is there is very real. There's so much economic wisdom in Proverbs. Yeah. And, and, and the emphasis of Proverbs when it comes to economics is on individual behavior, moral behavior yes. that leads to positive economic ends. Whereas we've got this thing right now, after so many years of government come to the, coming to the place where they monopolize um, charity, I mean, yeah. government does have a, a, an essential monopoly over charity, just like it does over education right now. If we could break those two monopolies, it'd be fantastic for people. But they've so dominated that. And now we come into the coronavirus situation. Mm -hmm. And this uh, seeming plague, which is not so much of a plague, frankly, in my opinion, has led to a greatest economic shift towards central planning that I think that we've ever seen in this country. I mean, it always felt like it beforehand, all these big government programs, mm -hmm. no child left behind, you know, was the, which was the conservative version of we're yeah. going to do good things uh, compared to the liberal uh, uh, versions in welfare programs, bad all around, but this is way beyond the pale. And we're spending so much money in this right now. Um, what are your thoughts on what's going on right now and, and what that means as it relates to, uh, to the principles that you're trying to lay out every day? Well, you know, uh, I'm sure that when we face a calamity of this magnitude, uh, that at least in the short run, there may be things government should do that it wasn't doing before. So one of my thoughts is anger that the government, uh, uh, took us uh, into this situation with its own fiscal house in such horrendous disorder. Uh, if you recall just eight months ago, we had a booming economy. And yep. do you think 
with that, uh, with the revenues gushing into the federal government, <laughs> the budget was balanced? No, we were approaching a trillion dollar deficit uh, for a single year, even before COVID hit. Well, that yeah. says that our government wasn't even getting its house in order to be able to handle a calamity of this order. And so now the deficit is two or three times that much, uh, which is hellacious and unsustainable. It's, it's, it's unimaginable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you imagine, uh, the American people ought to be really upset about this because imagine if you have a trillion dollar deficit in the best of times, Yeah. and then you get hit not just by a, uh, a health calamity, but let's say something else like, like a major war or two or three of them. How would we ever handle that? We couldn't. I mean, that would be the financial demise of the United States. Uh, I mean, it's like- There's a historical example of that, by the way. What about Germany, World War I? Yeah. <laughs> they yeah, printed yeah. up, we're printing money like crazy in this. It's a, not even a war. They were exactly. printing money like crazy, not just after the war to try to make up for all the reparations that were laid on them, but they were financing their war that way yeah. leading through it. And look at yeah. the consequence there. I'm thinking that, uh, uh, you know, there, there's so much of that we don't fully uh, comprehend just yet. But I think in six months or a year, we're going to look back and be in a better position to assess the government's response to this. And I suspect that if you're open-minded about it, you're going to realize that, wow, these lockdowns were, were pretty stupid and destructive. Yeah, uh, the absolutely. lack of focus on the most vulnerable and instead, uh, you know, shutting schools down, for instance, uh, uh, even for the uh, population least vulnerable. How much sense does that make? And some of the most horrendously stupid and, and harmful decisions made by these progressive governors like Cuomo of New York uh, and uh, Whitmer of Michigan and uh, uh, the governor of Virginia, New Jersey, governors of Virginia, New Jersey, forcing COVID patients into nursing homes. Yeah. I mean, hey, let's, hey, before we say, hey, we need more government because it does such a good job. Can we take a look at that, please? Yeah. Um, so I think uh, with a little time, maybe, maybe this is the good side of the whole thing. Maybe more people will come to their senses and when we can look back and say, boy, the government did some incredibly stupid and unsustainable things and put our grandkids on the hook for trillions of dollars they'll never be able to pay. And the, the logic behind it is outrageously lacking. Yeah. So let's just take the CARES Act, $2.3 trillion. And, and um, for those who listen to the podcast, I've said it a couple of different times, but you know, Thomas Massey, my former boss, I was his chief of staff, is just saying, hey, let's follow the constitution and have a quorum to do business. And literally, Republicans, Democrats, the media, everybody was literally against him. Yeah. But he made the right point. And they still couldn't get a vote because Nancy Pelosi threw a procedure up. Mm -hmm. So you, no one's on record for $2.3 trillion. And yeah. as I described it, I said, listen, we're going to literally take $2.3 trillion out of the economy. Yeah. We're going to hand it to politicians. Mm -hmm. and then they're going to determine how to put it back into the economy. That's literally what happened. And then people will say, well, no, no, no. You know, uh, the, they don't also consider the, that, um, you know, they're doing that in debt, you know, and it's not really to being taken out of the economy. Well, no, it is because about 70 to 80% of that money is going to be financed by individuals and organizations in the United States, the remaining amount will be bought yeah. overseas. But so what we've done with that then, we were doubled down on the problem. Not only do, is, the, is a politician gonna determine, have a, um, 
you're going to have all that money. A um, you're going to have all that money that could go to investment in the economy is now going to be invested in government bonds. Yeah. So now you've lost more productive capacity where we know that one of the great aspects of capitalism is investment that leads to uh, other things. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't help but say um, when we were doing this just a few months ago, it was so much in the news uh, with the first CARES Act. Uh, I couldn't help but think of the old Roman Republic. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, a student of that period in history because there's mm -hmm. so many lessons. America's founders knew this period very well and tried to imitate the best of it uh, in the construction of the American government. But I, I recall from uh, considerable reading on this period that as the Republic uh, uh, collapsed, what did you have? One Forget the Constitution for a moment, you know, that kind of stuff. This is how liberty is really <laughs> lost in history. I mean, uh, yeah, sometimes it's lost when a foreign invader takes you over, but more often than not, it's lost by salami, tac salami tactics at home, one slice at a time. Yeah. People then uh, uh, apologizing or covering up for it and saying, well, we won't, you know, it was an emergency. Uh, and then before you know it, their liberties are gone. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we've been talking with Larry Reed, uh, former president of Foundation for Economic Education. Um, before we close down today, and I know we've gone a little over the time we had planned, but I really appreciate you Happy sticking with me here. Um, what, what do we need to do moving forward to educate Christians mm -hmm. and people of goodwill anywhere on what's going on here and what we need and where we need should be going? Uh, let me answer that, uh, Jim, by saying that uh, so often in my public speaking, I have audiences who ask me, uh, what's the number one problem in the country? Uh, and I always answer the same way. I tell them that the number one problem is the same today as it's always been in every country at every time in history. The number one problem is always character. Mm. Everything else depends upon it. A nation uh, can rise to be free and prosperous if it's built upon solid principles of uh, sound character. But if it loses its character, it will lose its liberty and everything else. That's one of yeah. the salient lessons of all of history. Uh, liberty and character are two sides of the same coin. So I think we need to reconstruct and rebuild our character one person at a time. And let that rebuilt character be seen by your children and your friends, because most people learn more powerfully by example than they learn, learn from, from a book they might read. Uh, and then uh, apply those principles of character in your public life and in the public life that you demand of the people who supposedly represent you. You look around the country today and you find so many people who in public life are thoroughly corrupt. They only go to government to accumulate power and to, to seize other people's material wealth and distribute it to their friends. And instead of the folks back home seeing that as dirty, rotten business uh, that they would like to have nothing to do with, instead they say, oh, great, vote for that guy the next time because he's bringing home the bacon. That's right. Uh, yeah, and that's what the welfare state is all about. The welfare state is a situation where the politicians get well and the rest of us pay the fare. And we're all standing in a big circle. 
with each of us mm-hmm. having his hands in the next guy's pocket. Uh, that does not end well, never has. Uh, but it's, I think, a, 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 a call to character. If you want to preserve our liberties, uh, ask yourself, am I as responsible as I ought to be? Am I a humble person? Am I uh, respectful of the lives of other people's property, uh, of the lives of other people and their property? Mm-hmm. Do I teach these things to my kids, to the people I have the most influence over? Or am I just turning them over to the government and say, here, you teach them? You know, uh, right. when we abandon these things and expect somebody else to carry the burden, uh, disaster is... Um, the inevitable and imminent result. Yeah, we were doing that. I, I always refer back to uh, William F. Buckley's God and Man at Yale. You could see this starting to happen sometime before the 1950s when, when he was referring to that. But we really doubled down on this after the 1960s. Yeah. And um, we lost an understanding of what this country was about. Now, we had a whole generation from that time that that sustained this for a long time. But that World War II generation is almost entirely gone now. I mean, everyone's in their 90s and almost gone. And we so that that uh, fundamental understanding of what we were as a country, which they could even refer back to with their grandparents back into the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. We've kind of lost that as a visceral understanding of those principles. But we do have to uh, get back to the, or get to an understanding of that. And as you say, start training and teaching that particularly in families, it can be lost very quickly and it yeah. takes a long time to build it back up. Yeah. And, uh, but, we, but we have to start with it. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I, I'll tell you what, I'm concerned that if Joe Biden gets elected, which will mean in my opinion, that you're going to have a, an entirely Democrat Congress, you can start to see voting rights. You wrote an article on voting rights, which we won't, or mail-in voting, which we won't get into, but that's a real threat yeah. to, to where we're at. Um, I know you, you refer to Hans von Spakovsky from Heritage Foundation there, uh, Jay Christian Adams. I know both of these guys. We've had these discussions. The risks to voting uh, could become worse after a Democrat Congress. They could eliminate the Electoral College. They don't, they don't care about the Constitution. They, no, they, could, they could get rid of the Electoral College. They could mandate mail-in voting across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, they've already been passing many laws that change how we do voting. And I've related this, by the way, historically, back to how PRI came into power in Mexico after the uh, Mexican Revolution of 1920s. Everyone's heard the name Pancho Villa. They probably don't know the history. But, but PRI dominated that country. They made every other party second-class parties uh, in that country, and they were one-party rule for 80 years Decades. thereafter. Yeah. And they did that from, quote-unquote, it was really from a corporatist end, but, but it was kind of a, uh, from a right-leaning end. The Democrats could literally do that in our laws if Joe Biden gets elected, I'm, I'm not predicting it. I'm just con- concerned with it. This is what yeah. you saw happen in Venezuela, the strongest economy in South America. Um, I- I'm concerned about this. Do you think we should be hopeless about this? Oh, Are there reasons for hope? We should never be hopeless. In fact, I think as Christians, we should recognize those of us who are Christians. I realize you may have a broader audience, but yeah. certainly as Christians, we are commanded uh, not to fret and sit back and let uh, the world uh, fall into the handbasket of, of uh, the opposition. 
uh, we are commanded to do what we know is right and to speak courageously on its behalf, to speak truth to power. So no, we, there's no reason to be hopeless. There's every reason to fight back, never give the other side the luxury of winning anything with, without a battle. Um, don't be hopeless. I mean, we can be, uh, we can turn things around, but it requires that we redeem ourselves uh, and our character in, in ways that uh, uh, would allow a, a renaissance to, to, to happen. But, you know, if you sit back and say uh, all is lost and character doesn't matter and let's just vote for the guy that is in there because he, you know, he's the incumbent. And if you just give up on your responsibilities like that, yeah, the other side's going to win. I agree. And um, th th this whole podcast, I'm trying to also focus folks not only on merely having hope, but taking appropriate aggressive action against it yeah. to get away from the definition of nice, which is what's pleasing and acceptable to me and get to this idea of kindness, which is founded on eternal truths, yeah. eternal justice, and a, and a requirement, and frankly for Christians, the command mm -hmm. that they uh, push for real justice, not yes. this social justice stuff uh, in society. So Christians should understand, and anyone of goodwill, frankly, should understand Micah 6.8, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? By the way, yeah. to do justice is not just on a one-to-one -one basis where you're at, but also to affirm it in society, to do yeah. justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And, yeah. and I think reasserting these principles, if we can do it and if we get enough people that are willing to be courageous to do so, yeah. I mean, we, we have to look to God's providence over the affairs of men, but that does not mean we can't, we are not to assert his principles along the way. And, and we need more Christians are really bad at that right now in this country. And uh, we've got to change that. I think. Yeah. I don't think God would have given us principles if he, without the expectation that we commit ourselves to them, work on their behalf. Now, they're not just words on a, on a uh, stone tablet. I mean, they are uh, eternal, solid, sound as a rock, and uh, they are what we know to be right. And they, they come from um, our creator. So commit yourself to them and don't be a bystander. Well, I am very thankful for you taking some time. We went a little over our scheduled time and I'm, you're very gracious with that. We had a couple technical glitches, which no one's going to know about except that I just said it now because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fix them on the back end. But um, very grateful for all you've done to advance the principles of liberty. You know, I, the, the word libertarian sometimes is really hard to use because people sometimes just can't engage with it because it's been used in so many ways. But they are principles of liberty, these constitutional principles, which go way beyond our country. Yeah. They are fundamental principles that existed before the, long before this country ever existed. And you've done so much work through the years to advance that. Again, I, I want to encourage people to go to fee.org, F-E-E.org, the home of the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Make sure you go to lawrencewread.com. That's your website, and there's a lot of great information. Your blog is there, links to interviews that you've done. Um, 
and other information about you that I think is going to be very beneficial. I've gone through the website many times and just very approachable. So people need to go to lawrencewreed.com and get information there. Uh, anything else that I should share with people too? I think you got a podcast as well too. You might give people information about that. Uh, actually, no, I, I did have a radio show for a while, but oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, my travels and other work, uh, it just didn't work. So, but yeah. there, there, people can find it out there if they search for it. But go to lawrencewreed.com, that's going to be a great source of information. Um, any parting thoughts before we uh, close down this podcast, Larry? Well, just a quick thank you, Jim, for having me. I really appreciate it. And to those who have listened in, special thanks for giving us uh, your time. Hope you'll give a lot of thought to what we had to say. and and uh, think about uh, what you can do to make this a, a better world. Uh, it, it's not enough just to listen to things that you can nod your head to. We have to uh, uh, take action and do it in a way that uh, wins uh, others to our cause. I totally agree. Larry Reed, thanks for taking time on the Against Nice podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. Please be sure to go to our website, www.politicsisntnice.com. You can sign up for our email list there just at the top right of the webpage. And make sure to follow us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or even the iHeartRadio app. And give us a five-star rating and let people know what you think about our podcast. Again, www com. Join our email list at the top right hand of the page there and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or iHeartRadio. Thanks for joining the show today. We'll be back soon.